former columnist on the Wall Street Journal, the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Brett Stevens has been editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post and for the last five years has been a columnist on the New York Times. Brett, history matters to you, doesn't it? And I think it's obvious why. Your paternal grandfather experienced the Tsarist pogrom in Moldova in 1901, and your maternal grandparents had to flee both the Bolsheviks and the Nazis. So history is visceral for you, isn't it? I, I get to correct Andrew Roberts. 1903, as a matter of fact. It was ah, the spring yeah, of the... There were the two, there were the two pogroms, weren't there? Um, it, was, and, it, uh... was, it was the pogrom of, of 1903, and my paternal grandparents um, were um, barely spared from one of the most vicious and infamous pogroms of the early uh, 20th century, which is what sent them uh, which was which was what forced the decision to leave for the United States as soon as possible. A good decision in light of what happened to Bessarabian Jewry um, in the subsequent decades. And so history is its family as well as an, an intellectual uh, experience. History, you know, you know this wonderful line about uh, from Faulkner: "The past is never, you know, the past is never dead. It's not even the past." That's been particularly true for my family on my on my mother's side. Her her grandfather was arrested by um, the, the Zerzinski's secret police in Moscow in 1918. He was considered an unreliable element, and he was never heard from again, which sent the family fleeing to Berlin uh, until the Nazis came to power, which sent them fleeing again to Italy just before the race laws of 1938. My mother was born shortly thereafter. So on both sides of my family, um, my, my experience of the world has been shaped by these, these uh, uh, antecedents. And of course, on my father's side, his, um, his mother was an artist who came to Mexico in the 1930s to paint murals with some of the great muralists of the time, um, Orozco, Siqueiros and Rivera, and that's how I wound up growing up in Mexico. So th there, there's no escaping it in my case, or at least um, it was, it was, um, it was, there was no escaping its obviousness in my life. And you attended school in Concord, uh, Massachusetts at one point, which is obviously is a place with unfortunate historical overtones uh, for an well, Englishman <laughs> like me. Um, depends on, depends <laughs> on your accent. Well, absolutely. But um Today, the founding fathers are under attack as never before. Well, never before since uh, since the days of Concord and uh, and Lexington. Is there any hope for Jefferson and Washington and these other people who I was always brought up to believe were absolute giants um, of your country, but now their their names are being taken off schools, their statues are being moved uh, in New York, and so on. What's what's the story there, do you think, for the future? Well, I hope there's hope, because what is happening in the United States um, uh, is dangerous, not just for um, our memory of the past. I think it's dangerous for our future as well. Uh, countries that rear their children to hate their own history um, are are not necessarily countries that are prepared to struggle to um, preserve themselves. Um, if indeed you think, as um, some people now believe, that the history of the United States is an unremitting history of um, racism 
uh, and white supremacy, um, then what is there to fight for? Um, and 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 that ought to worry us. Um, I mean, on 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 many grounds. I I think there's hope because the side of uh, American life um, that uh, cares about history um, in a deep way, I think, is less ideological and less simplistic um, uh, than than the other side. Um, but we're doing great damage to American children these days by telling them that Jefferson was nothing other than a hypocritical slave owner, um, or that Washington wasn't the man who led us to uh, an independence in which, uh, and a republic which could conceive of the end of slavery as a foundational principle, but again, just another, um, um, another slaveholder. So we're in one of these periods that um, almost feels um, it's in its own way reminiscent of what the Taliban did on the eve of 9-11. Remember when they blew up those statues mm -hmm. of uh, the Buddhas? Um, there's an aspect of this now that's very much uh, afoot. And whether we can turn it around, I think, is an open question. Um, uh, I think uh, when I when I wrote a lengthy piece in the New York Times um, denouncing the 1619 project. I, I got a lot of support from the, for that, but the support it struck me seemed to come from older voices. And I wonder how much it resonated with younger ones. The magazine you edit, uh, the Sapir Journal, now in its seventh uh, quarterly edition, it's devoted this latest uh, issue to cancellation. And mm -hmm. um, in it, in your editorial, you say cancel culture is a cancer at the heart of liberal society. You break it down into five component parts, um, an action, a method, a capitulation, a mentality and a culture. Um, tell us more about that, I, because obviously it does lead on the, the, the 1619 project, those who are criticizing it. Um, some of those people have been uh, canceled already. What's the um, talk, talk us through the action method, capitulation, mentality and culture, if you can. Well, the action strictly speaking is cancellation, but really it's um, it's a form of annihilation. It's not simply a matter of losing a speaking gig or a book contract or even a job. Uh, a canceled person is going to lose those things. He's also gonna lose his friends. He's gonna lose his reputation. And in some tragic circumstances, they will lose their their lives. There 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 are cases of people who were uh, canceled, and um, uh, they were perhaps uh, had uh, depressive uh, streaks or just couldn't take the pressure, and the result was 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 uh, uh, a tragedy. Um, the I won't go through all the steps, but the important maybe I should mention two things that are particularly important. Cancel culture can't happen except when the people who are in charge let it happen. That is to say, if a Twitter mob decides that Andrew Roberts has expressed some terrible opinion, um, well, who cares, right? 
um, uh, maybe you're not the best example because you're an independent. No, I, I am. I assure you, there are lots of Twitter mobs that have said precisely that. But, but as you say, a Twitter mob. You don't. You're not reporting to an organization that has it within its power. No, that's true. My my mortgage isn't paid by by a, an organization. Exactly. Right, but say if, if your publishers were simply to decide you're too toxic to publish, that's the that's the aspect of capitulation. It's the surrender. It's the institutional surrender to the mob which is so extraordinarily disheartening that these institutions, which from the outside seem so strong and robust and talk about their values, sort of collapse on first inspection. And we've seen it happen time and again with distinguished people with long careers having their lives ruined over either a mistake or something that wasn't necessarily a mistake. It was just a, a judgment which turned out to be unpopular. But the, 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 the final point, is, is the question of culture. Because what, what matters here isn't that person X was canceled. I mean, it matters to person X, it matters to his family, but it creates a culture of fear. That is to say for every person who's canceled, there are hundred people who then fear they might be canceled. And so the result is a process of self-silencing, of, of not taking intellectual risk, of not saying certain things, of engaging in a kind of endless um, double think um, and double speak in order to avoid the, the risk that they might find themselves in the crosshairs. And so what cancel culture does, even if relatively few people are directly canceled, is it casts this pall on what ought to be a vibrant, robust, um, open culture of disagreement and debate, which is after all, at the heart of what makes for a lively, um, progressive, in the best sense, liberal society. We've got uh, an example going on in Britain at the moment where a man called Nigel Bigger uh, has written a very well-reviewed um, uh, book on colonialism, which attempts to uh, put it in its historical context. And uh, it makes absolutely no, uh, it's a highly objective book. It's that uh, it, there's not a sentence in it that the opponents have managed to take out and, and disprove. And yet, Bloomsbury, his publisher, uh, cancelled him, or at least cancelled the book. And uh, it's a, uh, a nerve-wracking thing when they can, they can actually, uh, the editor said how good the book was before there was a backlash. Um, it's thought to be amongst the younger, more woke um, employees of the firm. And, uh, and, and so they cancelled the book. You know, um, many years ago, Midge Dechter, um, Norman Podhortz's late wife and a great figure in her own right, wrote a book called um, Liberal Parents, Radical Children. I think that book came out in the 70s. And we're seeing a kind of a reprise of that because the people who run many of these institutions, publishing houses, um, deans at universities, uh, publishers and editors at, at magazines and newspapers, they're all liberal, and if you had a conversation with them, they would tell you, of course we stand for free speech, of course there has to be room for disagreement, of course we should be pushing the boundaries of, of, uh, of what, you know, what, 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 can, what can be thought and said. And yet they cower in the face of the editorial uh, assistants and interns and junior editors who are a handful of years out of college and demanding that there should be 
um, sensitivity reads and uh, um, other kind of somewhat uh, Maoist uh, style um, uh, uh, frameworks to uh, prohibit the expression of opinions they they dislike. And and what I don't understand about is is all it would take to bring this to an end is some publisher saying, if you don't like working here, if you don't like what we're publishing, you can leave, you can go. And as far as I can tell, very few of them, none that I can think of, have had the nerve to say that. And so at, at, at issue is not simply a political issue, it's almost a psychological issue as to why these upstanding middle-aged liberals who have reached the pinnacles of their profession are so terrified of upsetting the juniors who, who, who just showed up in the office uh, a year or two ago. And, 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 and I, don't, I don't pretend to understand it, Andrew. Sapir is a uh, Jewish magazine, isn't it? The, uh, it is. The, it's Ideas for a Thriving Jewish Future. Why does cancel culture have a particular resonance for Jews? Well, for a number of reasons. Um, number one, we're the most canceled people in the world. So we should care about it because if cancel culture takes root um, in one part of the culture, um, it's bound to take root in others. And invariably, we run the risk of becoming the target of it. Um, secondly, we have a culture that believes in what's called argument for the sake of heaven. Um, <laughs> Well, Judaism, interestingly, is a religious tradition that invites and memorializes the dissenting view. In, in, in most other religious traditions, if there are dissenting views, they're either suppressed or they become schismatic and you know, be, move, move in another direction. But Judaism has always operated with the idea that these dissenting views have inherent value and should be maintained as part of the broader uh, tradition, which is, I think, helps explain the Jewish attraction to um, to the legal profession, where where dissenting views uh, also have some have some sway. I think the third aspect is that um, there is something about Jewish culture which is ironic, irreverent. Um, it takes a view of human nature even of our patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, all of these are complex figures. Not one of them is a simple black and white, uh, good or bad type of figure. And cancel culture um, frowns on all of that. In cancel culture, there are only evil oppressors and stainless victims. In cancel culture, there is a correct opinion and there is, and there is a heresy. Um, and all of this ought to threaten us because if Jews are true to those traditions of both mind and uh, um, and practice, then we're bound to run afoul of cancel culture. And I guess the last aspect is this, which is that for one reason or another, Jews disproportionately are represented in the liberal institutions in which cancel culture is take, now taking root, right? in academia, in publishing, and so on. So just by that fact alone, Jews are that much more in the crosshair. So, so we thought that th this issue was sufficiently important that we had to devote an, a, 
the subject was sufficiently important that we had to devote an entire volume of essays to it. Yeah, they're very, they're very powerful. You edited the Jerusalem Post during the worst years of the Palestinian suicide bombing campaign. Do you think that the Abraham Accords show now that the Israeli-Palestinian um, struggle is no longer the defining feature of the uh, of Middle Eastern politics, at least in the way that it once was? I mean, I, I would rephrase that slightly. I never think it was the defining feature of, I think it was never the defining feature of Middle Eastern politics. It's just that that has become more obvious to more people. Right, um, yeah. Um, if you if you uh, if you sort of do an accounting of um, the loss of human life in the Middle East from the creation of the state of Israel in 1947-1948 to the present, you know the places where the real bloodletting took place within some of these dictatorships within Saddam's Iraq or between the dictatorships between Saddam and Iran during the uh, eight-year um, Iran-Iraq war in Yemen during the proxy battle between Nasser and the Saudi kingdom in the early 1960s, um, the Lebanese civil, uh, civil war, all of these had a toll in lives and a significance that was much greater than what happened between Israelis and Palestinians. It's just that Palestinians and their allies managed to fashion a narrative which suggested that this was really the only conflict that counted in the region. And it's now in the last 10 or 15 years as it's become apparent to um, more people, particularly within the Arab world, that their real enemy is not uh, the state of Israel, their real enemy is the Islamic Republic of Iran, that that has really begun to shift. I think the signing of the Abraham Accords effectively put an end to the Arab-Israeli conflict, didn't put an end to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but it means that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is now uh, a, a kind of a, a, a secondary one to the larger, the, 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 what used to be the much larger conflict, that's over. Now you have a de facto Israeli-Arab alliance facing the, the radicalism and the encroachments of Shiite power, not just in Iran, but in Yemen, Lebanon, Syria, and, and elsewhere. Well, let's talk about the Iranian nuclear deal, because in 2014, you wrote America in Retreat, the new isolationism and the coming global disorder, uh, which was immensely prescient, uh, considering everything that's happened since. Do you see the Biden administration's stance over the Iranian nuclear deal as fitting into your theory? I don't know what the Biden administration's stance is anymore. They came to office promising a longer, stronger deal, essentially re-entering the nuclear, the old um, JCPOA deal, but with uh, stronger provisions and a longer duration. That was a non-starter from, from the very beginning. Uh, and the negotiations had effectively failed even before um, Iran became Russia's best friend prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now the negotiations have effectively been declared dead, but there's no framework that I can see the administration using in terms of what we do next. And that's, that's profoundly problematic because Iran is moving at great speed toward acquiring all of the elements needed for a robust nuclear weapons capability. They're in separate baskets right now. You know, the, the question of nuclear enrichment in one basket 
uh, ballistic missile development in another and weaponization in the third. But once once they have everything, once those baskets are full, each each basket is full, bringing them together uh, is can be done very, very quickly. And and I don't know what 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 Biden proposes to do. He doesn't talk about it. I don't hear Jake Sullivan or Anthony Blinken talking about it. There's just there's just a complete vacuum. Do you think there might be a secret plan or do you think there's no plan at all about what to do about it? I don't get the sense. I, I, I get the sense that the administration is consumed with Ukraine and with China and Iran is a, is a um, tertiary note there. You mentioned Ukraine. Um, obviously, the uh, Abraham Accords took place under Donald Trump's presidency. He's on record as calling you a lightweight journalist, uh, one of the um, Pulitzer Prize winning lightweight journalists, presumably, and you're on record as having likened him to Mussolini. Uh, where um, wh- Were he to become president again, what happens in, in Ukraine, would you guess? You know, I don't know. Uh, Trump, there's an incoherence at the heart of uh, Trumpism that is that makes its actions difficult to predict. You know, Trump likes to say, well, if he were still president, he would have solved Ukraine and you know, the Ukrainian issue in a day. He has gone out of his way to flatter Putin, but his administration also did much more to sanction Putin than either his predecessor or Joe Biden did, at least up until the Ukraine war uh, began. Um, uh, and, Obviously, you know, Trump's first impeachment had to do with his efforts to strong arm the Zelensky government into providing political dirt on the Biden family, um, which which didn't work out uh, uh, too well. So I'm leery of, of people who say, well, if Trump were president, either Putin would never have invaded or we would have taken care of this a long time ago. You can look into the Trump record and see instances where he acted quite decisively as with the killing of Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian uh, terror supremo, if you will, in the, the, he, was, he was killed by drone strike in Baghdad. But I also remember that Trump did nothing to respond to Iran after Iran used drones to take out some huge percentage of the world's oil supply with an unprovoked attack on Saudi Arabian um, refining facilities in um, uh, in 2019. So I don't know how to answer your question other than to say that I am confident that Trump will not again be president of the United States. Um, so there's, tell me more. Um, this, this is uh, um, interesting. You think that there won't be a huge number of people who stand or just that he won't get um, enough votes to uh, to slip between the large number of um, candidates? I don't think he can possibly win another general election. Oh, I see. Even if he became the Republican... Even if he became the nominee... Nominee, he would, he would be beaten by, by any Democrat. Well, I don't want to say any Democrat, but uh, by most Democrats, including by... All, all the likely ones who... Yes. Including by Joe Biden. Um, uh, remember, Joe Biden beat him by 7 million votes. You know, you can look at a number of states uh, that were were close, but uh, in many of those states, those states have only gone more blue uh, since since Biden's um, election. Arizona being a great case in point. 
Trump did himself profound damage by his refusal to accept the legitimacy of the 2020 uh, election and by holding on to the lie of, of, uh, of a stolen, uh, stolen election. And in 2016, there was just enough discontent in the country and just enough um, uh, of a belief that maybe an, uh, uh, an outsider and a bit of a loose cannon could shake things up. I don't see this country voting for that. Again, I say this with humility because I've been wrong before, but I would add further, I don't see the Republican party nominating him uh, again. Uh, again, it, uh, it could happen, but I, I, I would be exceptionally surprised if, if it did, not simply because Trump lost in 2020, but because Trump lost the Senate in 2021 when his insistence on a stolen election cost the Republican Party two Senate seats in Georgia. Uh, he lost it again in 2022 by, um, by endorsing a succession of losers in senatorial races uh, in Pennsylvania, in Arizona, um, uh, and what was, uh, what was I'm, I'm, I'm missing another uh, close race that will, that, that will come to me. But he'll also lose it because Ron DeSantis, his likeliest challenger, was reelected as governor by 20 points and DeSantis has shown that he's an exceptionally disciplined and intelligent Republican. He won't allow himself to be baited by Trump the way Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush did uh, six or seven uh, years ago. Um, he has many of the qualities that voters liked about Trump, his pugilistic, you know, his willingness to take on liberal shibboleths and, and, and progressive media without the rougher edges, uh, without the coarseness, without sometimes just the, the stupidity of it. And he's also made inroads with the two other constituencies that a Republican needs to win. The Republican nominee will have to win over the, a sufficient percentage of people who like Trump because of his manner and his whole, his whole affect. They're, they're, he will need or she will need to win over evangelical Christians. And DeSantis has done that with his bills like parental rights and education, um, uh, mis misnamed the Don't Say Gay bill. And he has to win over Chamber of Commerce type Republicans, business-minded Republicans. And anyone who's been in the United States in the last year or so, even throughout the pandemic, knows that Florida is, is booming. It is, it is, uh, it's where it's happening in the United States much as Texas was booming in the 70s or California in the 90s. And so those, the fact that he has mastered the three-legged stool of the Republican Party inclines me to think Ron DeSantis will be the nominee. And if he's the nominee, does he beat Biden? Yes. He is half Biden's age or seems that way. Um, and, um, it, you know, all DeSantis has to do is prove to a wavering middle that he's not crazy and he's not nasty. And that's not necessary, that's not a particularly tall order for, uh, for him. He's a canny politician. People say that on closer acquaintance, he seems more high-handed, not as warm as most politicians should be. Um, it's not a crippling defect if he's aware of it and if he at least makes the efforts to glad hand, ingratiate himself with donors, 
uh, lose some of the, the arrogance that has sort of typified uh, him. I mean, remember, he's only, I think, 46 years old, 45 years old. Um, he, 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 can, he can still grow as a political figure, and I think he will. Is there a Thucydidean trap, um, Thucydidean trap that regarding Chinese-American relations that's uh, pushing them towards confrontation? What, um, what would America do if uh, China were to invade Taiwan, for example? Well, I hope we would come to Taiwan's defense, and I hope we don't have to because um, we could dissuade the Chinese from doing that by rapidly arming Taiwan with um, weapons that are easily distributed uh, and easily hidden. Um, but uh, we're going to have a tougher, if, if it comes to that in the next few years and China decides to invade, we will right now have a tougher time defending the island for a few obvious reasons. It's an island. Unlike Ukraine, there isn't a land border to um, to resupply it. Um, Taiwan has hollowed out its military. People forget that prior to this last, last year's invasion, the Ukrainian army had become a battle-hardened army by constantly fighting Russia in, uh, in the Donbass. The Taiwanese don't have that advantage. And um, uh, China has advantages of scale that are that are massive. We said that about Russia. The only difference is that um, Russia and Putin, I don't think we're sufficiently aware of just how weak, what a Potemkin village their military really was. I would assume that Xi and other Chinese military planners are looking very carefully at Russian mistakes in Ukraine and organizing not to repeat them should, should, uh, should they decide to invade Taiwan. So at the present time, I think the only real hope we have is to give Taiwan the means to defend itself, to, to make itself, I don't know, um, a sea urchin that the Chinese are not gonna wanna step on. And the best way to do that is by what military planners call distributed lethality, which means fewer F-16s taking off of runways that can be bombed, more N-laws, javelins, stingers, and other weapons that can pop up that can be hidden in, 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 in basements and elsewhere and do devastating damage to an invading army. And, um, and, and America would stand by um, Taiwan. It would, um, it would have, the Biden administration would have the necessary uh, um, intestinal fortitude to, um, to actually uh, put your fleets and your, and your troops at risk. So this is the great question, and I, it's one of the imponderables. Biden has said, to his credit, repeatedly, that he will defend Taiwan. And I actually think the strategy that he has adopted, which is he goes out and says it, and then his people walk it back, is very clever. Because what it signals to the Chinese is that if push comes to shove, he's going to do it. That's where his heart is. And staff people are just pretending that the boss has lost his marbles, and they're making they're, 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 they're papering over um, uh, his, his, his missteps. It's that slightly risky that though, isn't it? Because what if it's the other way around and the Chinese think actually his people will stop uh, Biden from doing anything that they need to, um, uh, to worry about? 
So the Chinese, I think, are reasonably savvy and make, um, although you're right, that's a perfectly possible um, interpretation. The bigger question, Andrew, is what happens? I mean, we've been supporting Ukraine because it's been, other than financially speaking, it's been a costless exercise for us. No American soldiers have been lost in the effort to defend uh, uh, Ukraine. Um, we've we've given them sort of our, uh, not even our first line of um, of our military inventory. We've essentially given them hand-me-downs that would have been consigned to scrap had the Ukrainians not been desperately in need of them. Or left for the Taliban to capture. Or left for the Taliban to capture. By the way, it tells you something about the strength of the U.S. military um, that our third-rate equipment is consistently destroying Russia's first-rate equipment. Um, and I hope the Chinese are, 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 are noticing that. But let's imagine that um, the, the Chinese launched an amphibious assault against, um, uh, against Taiwan, and we send a carrier battle group in that direction and a distance of 1,500 miles or so from the Chinese mainland, they manage to get off a shot that sinks an American aircraft carrier. American aircraft carrier is not just a, a you know, $6 billion piece of kit. It's 5,500 airmen and sailors aboard. So it would be the most catastrophic loss of life from a military perspective that we've endured in a single strike ever. Um, that's how much, that's how concentrated the, the forces. How would America react at that point? Quite possibly rage and a, and a kind of a, a firm sense as we felt after Pearl Harbor that this was going to be avenged, or we could say, let's cut our losses. And I, I just don't know where, where the administration or where the American people would come down. Well, 9-11 was only 20 years ago, but then I, I suppose they didn't have nuclear weapons in the way that the Chinese do. And, and, the, and for, for the Chinese, they have, been, they have more than doubled their nuclear forces in the last three years. And they are working their way quite sedulously towards nuclear parity, strategic nuclear parity with the United States. And we've been immobile uh, basically this, this whole time, I mean, essentially modernizing, but not enlarging our nuclear fleets. Um, so we are, we face a very daunting challenge. The one area you mentioned that the, 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 the Thucydides is trap. And that tends to happen when a rising power confronts uh, an incumbent power. The case of China, I think, is a little bit different in that I think China is a declining power. I think Chinese power actually peaked uh, some time ago. Um, its population, uh, just of last month, it is now losing more people than it is gaining, obviously, from a huge base, 1.4 billion people. But uh, demographic decline, that is, that is almost irreversible and poses profound, profound economic challenges to, uh, to the Chinese. Their economy has slowed terribly, and they're being poorly led by Xi. Now, maybe this makes them more aggressive, but it's a little bit different. Well, from... that's what I was about to say. There, there are some examples of that, aren't there? The Kaiser's Germany was... Uh was felt itself it was losing out vis-a-vis -vis Russia and uh, all it did was make it more aggressive rather than yeah and, and and other countries that have found themselves in 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 uh, trouble uh, Argentina before the Falkland invasion um, 
try to stir trouble abroad to distract from problems at home. So that's that's an, that's certainly a possibility. Uh, possibility too. My my bet is that the Chinese will attempt to take Taiwan, and that their their calculation is the sooner they do it, the likelier they are to succeed. Um, absolutely terrifying. Um, the uh, this is a history podcast. So uh, tell me how you think that the Iraq War uh, will be seen by historians in in fifty or hundred years time. I think in a hundred years time, um, canny historians will see it a little bit differently than we do uh, today. Um, uh, in that they will they will conclude correctly that we marched into war, Britain, the United States, and our partners. Um, First of all, fully believing the intelligence about Iraq's weapons of mass destruction, which was faulty intelligence, but sincerely believed. Secondly, because the real weapon of mass destruction in Iraq was Saddam Hussein himself, who had presented a 25 year security challenge to um, the Middle East and the West at large, and would do so again if he had been able to um, free himself from uh, the shackles of sanctions, which in fact he was in the process of doing by the end of the Clinton administration, the, the, the beginning of, of uh, the Bush administration. So we went to war really uh, speaking about weapons of mass destruction because it was our best legal justification. Um, the best justification for going to war was to get rid of this uniquely um, sinister and malign and genuinely dangerous character named Saddam Hussein. And the war accomplished that purpose. If you look at Iraq today, whatever else you can say about Iraq, Iraq is not a threat to the security of the world. Iraq does not seize the attention of Western policymakers. Um, uh, the second point I, I would say is that um, for all of that, the real question is whether the game was worth the candle. Um, to use a, an expression from your from your side of side of side of the pond, um, uh, and there I think the judgment it'll be a harder judgment to uh, uh, to uh, to make. I guess the third point is this: if you're going to go into a country intent on turning it into something like a functioning society, you need to think a lot harder about how you actually make societies work. And the great failure, I think what historians will recall is the great failure isn't that, it wasn't in fact the question of WMD. The great failure was how it was that the United States of America could not get the lights to go on 24 seven in Baghdad. And that failure, which is a failure of bureaucracy and government and management is, is, is inexcusable um, and almost inexplicable. Uh, there's something that I ask all my uh, guests on this podcast. The first one is uh, 
what book, what history book or biography are you reading at the moment? It, it rather assumes, it takes for granted that all the intelligent people that I have on my podcast are reading either a biography or a uh, history book, but um, so far nobody has not. Uh, so I'm assuming you've got one on the go. Brett. So at my wife's recommendation, um, and it's apropos our discussion of cancel culture, I'm reading Joseph Anton which counts, I think, as both history as well as biography, not to mention memoir. It's Salman Rushdie's account of his years in hiding after the fatwa from the Ayatollah Khomeini. And Rushdie was forced by, by the, 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 the security crisis he faced to adopt a pseudonym. He chose Joseph Anton, Joseph from Joseph Conrad, Anton from Anton Chekhov, and lived in hiding those, those many years. And he writes about himself really quite movingly and fascinatingly in the third person. So it's, it's Salman Rushdie looking at this character named Joseph Anton with who, whose, whose story he's intimately familiar with. And what's interesting to me above all is who proved themselves to be, who among his friends proved himself or herself to be true and, and who wasn't. Um, the number of people who uh, essentially betrayed Rushdie, said it was his own fault, um, is, is staggering. It's a roll call of dishonor in terms of the people who, 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 who belonged to the writing profession and basically said to him, he had it coming, he never should have uh, done this. Um, and so, in its own way, it's sort of the the um, the uh, he was the patient zero in cancel culture. Yeah, and you also get you also got a few people on the other side, didn't you? I mean, he had denounced Mrs. Thatcher, calling her Mrs. Torture, and so on. But actually, when it came to uh, supporting him and giving him the uh, necessary um, bodyguards and and making sure taxpayers' money was spent defending him, uh, she actually sort of stepped up, even though uh, she probably hadn't read a word of uh, Rushdie. She certainly didn't like his politics and he didn't like hers. The, so there were some people who who did the opposite, weren't there? Well, exactly. And and I haven't read the whole thing yet. I'm in the process of reading it. I don't know what whether he comes around on, on uh, prime minister, but he lavishes praise on the security men, the state security men who really gave over years of their lives to protect him and uh, and his and his family. So um, uh, I, I would never hold a man's liberal politics against him when he's confronted with that. His ordeal was an education in the in, in, in who the real fascists are in today's world. Um, who the real torturers are in today's world. And it ain't Margaret Thatcher, it wasn't the Tories, it was uh, the, the revolutionary forces that had endeared themselves to the left in the 60s and 70s who wound up coming, uh, 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 coming after him. And so in that sense, I just think it's an absolutely stunning you know, account of what it means to be um, at the receiving end of a real effort at cancellation, which of course, just last year, nearly resulted in his death. Yeah, yeah, monstrous. Uh, and your what if, your, your counterfactual, what's the, uh, what's the, um, the fun counterfactual that uh, you like to think about historically? 
Oh, I think about many what ifs. Um, what if Barack Obama had um, responded to Bashar Assad's chemical attack in 2013 with a decision that the Assad regime had to go, um, sustained uh, military efforts to help the overthrow of Assad, leading to a conclusion for Assad similar to what Muammar Gaddafi met, uh, met with, which might have dissuaded um, Vladimir Putin from invading Crimea in six months later in 2014, which would have prevented us from now being in the worst security situation that Europe has faced in, in a very long time. Let's drill down on that one just slightly, because it, it was extraordinary at the time as a, uh, as a Briton and therefore a, um, a believer in America, somebody who assumed that America would stand by its word. When he used the words red lines, I just assumed, like everybody else in the West, that that meant that when that uh, line was crossed, yeah. um, then America was going to come down like a ton of bricks on, uh, on Syria. And so when he, he failed to, uh, to do what he was essentially promising by using the word red lines, uh, it was a devastating blow for the um, credibility of America, wasn't it? I think the second term of the Obama administration will be remembered by historians, again, looking back 100 years when it's shorn of its um, partisan or emotional content as some of the very worst years in American foreign policy, because we adopted a policy of disappointing and betraying our friends and attempting to ingratiate ourselves with our enemies. And we did it with Iran, with the JCP, misbegotten JCPOA of 2015. We had done it even earlier, uh, I guess you can go back to the first Obama term with the Russia reset, uh, an extraordinarily foolish uh, policy. Um, we did it in terms of our relations with both Israel and, 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 and the Arab world. We did it in our attempts to have a, um, a, a robust relationship with, uh, with the Chinese. And it's it's and also lesson. not supporting those um, incredibly brave Iranians who uh, who in two thousand uh, precisely in two thousand and nine. I mean that was an extraordinary thing as well, just letting them in the in the lurch. Yeah, I, I should now expand my my parameters not simply to from two thousand thirteen to to sixteen, but from the beginning of the Obama administration. It was really and, and the whole framework of the Obama administration. I should add the the complete withdrawal of the United States from Iraq, which is what created the vacuum of power that in which ISIS was able to take root and create uh, a security crisis for the West for, 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 for many years. And it, it's a reminder that actually in foreign policy, foreign policy can be very complex, but it really comes down to a simple thing, which is know who your friends are and know who your enemies are. Once you've figured that one out, then you can start to make a number of decisions. But the Obama administration forgot the most basic thing. And much of what ails us today is a consequence of that, of that act of, of forgetting. Brett Stevens, thank you very much indeed. Andrew, it's, a, it's an honor. I should say Lord Roberts, it's an honor to be on this, uh, this podcast with my my favorite historian in the, in, in, in the whole world without 
that's that's not even a hard call. <laughs> Thank you very much. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcast or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.